Welcome, everybody, to the Angry Sun Zone, where on this fourth episode, we are continuing our journey through our favorite games. So, last episode, we covered, uh, we started our list of our top 15 favorite games, and we made it through uh, item 15 to 10 on our list. And 11. 11. And now, we go from 10 all down as far as we can go this episode. To 6. Yeah. To 6. So, without further ado, welcome to the Angry Sun Zone. I'm Sean Hertig. I'm Santo. Last name redacted. I'm Alex. That's enough. You don't need to know anymore. All right. Try 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 looking Alex up. You'll never find him. His SEO is too 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 good for My a bridge. SEO is too good. That's right. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> uh, I guess I'll I'll start us off today. Okay. So my number ten is. Uh, Paper Mario, The Thousand Year Door. Nice. And, okay, so specifically, I love uh, the Paper Mario series. Um, it's it's a great series with great humor, wonderful writing. Um, it, some entries are pretty solid RPGs, like Paper Mario, Thousand Year Door, which is why it's one of my favorite. Some of the other entries in the series are, uh, they try to break out of the mold into something more like a platformer or like with a weird card based stuff. Um, but I love thousand year door because it's got all the great humor and character and writing of the series. Um, but just, and, uh, uh, the graphics look great in it. Even today, I'd say it holds up pretty well. Um, and, uh, it, it plays it straight. Like it's pretty much just an RPG with some action elements. Uh, and they're well executed. Um, I think in theory, if you're good enough, you could probably uh, tank the entire entire game without taking a single hit. Um, mm-hmm. Probably you're not good enough to do that, but it's possible. It's a challenge for any YouTubers out there, just beating the game without taking any damage ever. Uh, yeah, and so Paper Mario: The Thousand Year Door to me is just like uh, it's it's everything uh, it's everything an RPG should be, you know. A fun story, uh, great enemies, uh, you know, cool, uh, like a cool world to explore, uh, great writing, uh, very engaging battles. Like, I love it when the battles in an RPG have just nice interaction instead mm-hmm. of just um, telling your characters to attack. Uh, it really livens up the RPG experience. So, uh, yeah, that's my number 10 favorite game. Yeah, Super Mario Thousand Year Door is a pretty, pretty damn good pick. I've I've only played it via renting it once, but I was able to get as far and past the I believe it's the third like super duper star gem or whatever. Rock Hawk, Rock Hawk, the uh, wrestling wrestling superstar. Uh, that arc was that arc was so cool. That honestly was probably one of the best uh, stars in any Paper Mario game. Mm-hmm. It's like. Yeah, you know what? We're just gonna turn this whole thing into into a into a weird uh, into a weird wrestling like tournament bracket thing. Yeah, like coliseum type thing. Yeah, it was super cool concept and uh, uh, great fl- great great flavor. Also, you got a 
you got a badass Yoshi. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time Yoshi's involved, I love the game. <laughs> uh, this this is a theme. You'll notice. Uh, and then, actually, that brings up another point that I really loved about Thousand Year Door specifically, is that they really livened up uh, the game by having the different stars in the different kind of areas of the world be very different. Um, uh, another one of the interesting ones was the second The second one, uh, the second star, it, you're in this, like, forest, and it's it's almost like a Pikmin game, uh, where you, you control a bunch of, like, little creatures that, that uh, roam around, and you gotta, like, flip pressure plates and stuff like that with them. Uh, so... And in other parts of the game, they, they introduce various other mechanics. I think it was the first Paper Mario game where you... Oh, maybe not. You play as Bowser for a little bit. Totally different. Concrete. Oh, that, that that part was really good. That part was really good, <laughs> yeah. Uh, spoilers! But, yeah, they, uh, the game's really solid. Alright. Uh, I can go next. Uh, my number 10 game... When I first heard of the concept for this game, I completely dismissed it as, what the hell, this game, how is that even a game? But then, then one fateful day, I saw Alex playing it at school, and everything changed. And this is Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Like, a game where you play as a lawyer? What the hell? How is that even a game? But the, the Ace Attorney series has maybe, pound for pound, the best writing of any game series. It's so, so good. Everything has this, like, incredible amount of charm and humor to it. All the different cases that you go through have really interesting twists. And the localization in this game is amazing, because there's a bunch of, like, weird Like, most characters' names are just puns. And there's a ton of weird, like, references... Like, in the Apollo Justice game, there's a ton... There's, like, one room where, like, half the stuff you click on has is a reference to the band The Police. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's very dense with references to pop culture uh, and uh, various other media. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, one of my favorite cases was one with... Uh, there's, it's, like a, it's like a circus case, and there's, like, a clown that's yeah. uh, basically... I think he's just, like, rapping... Fresh Prince of Bel Air <laughs> lyrics or something like that, or there's references to the Fresh Prince, and it's and it's just written in such a way where it's like it's not weird, it's believable, and you're just like this I, this clown man, love this clown, this clown's ridiculous, this dope clown, <laughs> uh, and yeah, and wonderful writing, it, a, a, a testament to. Um, I can't remember. The, the, there's this sort of like dis, not dispute, but sort of different schools of localizing games. Yes, yes. Um, like, do you do a faithful translation, or do you adjust the script uh, to meet the cultural context? Um, from what I've heard, the Phoenix Wright games in Japanese are completely like the writing is totally different. Um, it's still very culture. Uh, heavy, heavy on like the references mm-hmm. and humor and pop culture context, but it, it mostly references Japanese cultural yeah. um, media and uh, tropes and 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 stuff like that. Where it, which is obviously not what we get in the North American version of Phoenix yeah. Right. And like uh, in the most recent game, I believe there, or maybe 
it's dual destinies i forget but there is a case that is like incredibly like japanese culture themed and based and like honestly that was one of the weaker cases in the series just because the writing was just like it felt a little bit off just because the source material that they had to work with was so rooted in like the japanese culture that it i don't know it felt it, felt it doesn't like, translate exactly yeah, but I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of local local localizers taking liberties with the original script and making it you know more more culturally relevant for the place that they're localizing it to. Yeah, I think Nintendo. Like, we'll to, we'll get there. the The next game on my list also has an amazing localization. Yeah, I was actually gonna. I was just gonna say I actually think Nintendo very much took the same approach with Paper Mario um, when they were localizing it. You can tell because like definitely yeah. a lot of the Paper Mario games have references to other western media and jokes that that Mm. would be that are more uh the the jokes are written for a north american audience right so you can you can tell and that that that, i think when you're especially with humor yeah you kind of you need to uh faithful translations of like culturally contextual humor just don't work yeah not without gratuitous explanations that ruin the joke and interrupt the flow completely yeah. well so, well sometimes in in like an anime sub having there just be like a re- really out of place translator note is sometimes way funnier than the actual joke that's being being told i i especially love it when the translator's note takes up half the screen <laughs> yeah that's exactly you what have to about. pause it's, it's so absurd it. that it ends up being actually funnier but yeah eh, things right like the the series as a whole is fantastic, and not just like the main games, the spin-off games as well. Like the Miles Edgeworth Investigations is also amazing. Um, Phoenix Wright Cross Professor Layton is incredible. That that's got some like some of the best game moments I've ever seen in it. But for for me, yeah, it's, the first one makes it on the list. Um, as like the introduction of the concept was so solid in that game. And it's got just some amazing cases. Uh, the fourth and the fifth case, especially, are just like completely insane. You do insane shit in them. Yeah. You interrogate a parrot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, it, it just and it beautifully handles this sort of weird niche that it's in, where it's 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 kind of like a point and click adventure game. It is not, point and click adventure. Yeah, yeah but there's not a lot of point-and-click adventure games that that are remotely similar to Phoenix Wright, I would say. Then again, I haven't played... I, uh, haven't, yeah, maybe well, I just haven't played the other ones that are similar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Phoenix Wright is... It's pretty unique it's entity. Special. And, yeah. yeah, it's definitely a special game. Awesome. Alright, so to continue my tier list, uh, let's go with yet another S-tier game. You know, tier lists generally have more than one tier. <laughs> I think also when you're presenting them, you generally start from the lower tiers and go up. Well, as it turns out, <laughs> S is the lowest and the highest tier. So uh, we have arrived. <laughs> at my... is, that, is that because S is both better than A, but also at the S end of the alphabet? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. No, it's, it's the Sean tier. The Sean tier. Yeah. Everything's in the Sean tier. It's his list. It's your list. 
Alright, so this one is a little bit of an oddity because it's actually, from my understanding, a web-only game. And it was designed by uh, uh, a team on the, uh, um, on the Lego games side. It is Spybotics, The Nightfall Incident. I have never even heard of this game. Me neither. So this game came out with, uh, there was the Lego series of toys that actually had the programmable controller. Oh, okay. And so like this... Mindstorms? Mindstorms is correct. And so this game was essentially uh, a tie-in with the Mindstorms-themed uh, products. And so what it was is a hacking game, uh, very similar to um, the game with Incognita, Invisible Ink. Yes. So the concept, I almost feel like Invisible Ink leaned very heavily on what uh, was the uh, Spybotics and Nightfall incident. And uh, essentially the premise is um, you are uh, a hacker navigating through cyberspace um, and you go through a series of battles where you are progressing with um, pieces that you pick up and upgrade and so you've got a series of programs and these programs uh, you can buy better ones on the market uh, and then you need to go ahead and attempt these levels and beating the levels uh, unlocks more of the uh, more, more of the play space in order to progress through each mission uh, and also opportunities to buy more things at the shop. And the overall pr- uh, quality of this online-only game that was actually free to play as well um, was so astounding that uh, I, I was hooked. I ended up playing uh, through the entire game uh, over, over a weekend and it really stuck with me um, just because... Lego has created some other uh, pretty fantastic games. Uh, one of the oldest throwbacks is actually Lego Racers, which oh, yeah. uh, definitely is way up there. But this this particular game really tickled the geek in me just for being... Um, it was quite the engaging strategy game. Of all the strategy games that I've ever played, uh, it definitely it felt pretty robust. Uh, well, actually, re- very, very, very robust. And... Um, it uh, it was just a deep nostalgia dive back to Lego with actu- without actually making Lego the primary component of this game. Mm-hmm. Like if you didn't realize that you were playing a Lego game, you might not think of it in that way. Uh, but yeah, overall top tier for me. So, like, how how long ago was this? Spybotics came out. I don't need necessarily an exact date. It's a ballpark because like. Whew. Uh, it is from 2002. Yeah, so... And was made in Shockwave. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up, because Flash is dead. So I wonder if that got archived anywhere. Uh, probably, they actually, it probably did. They made a remake of it. Oh, um, okay. And so that is available on itch.io, I believe. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, so... If you can find it online, or you're interested in it, definitely recommend to take a peek. Um, and uh, there's multiple ways to approach a level. It's not a puzzle game. It's very much still a strategy game. Um, and uh, definitely a, uh, a a peak strategy game. That's cool, man. 
Yeah, you know, honestly, some of the Lego video games have been surprisingly good over mm-hmm. the years. Definitely. Like, another couple uh, that just come to my mind, like Lego Racers, uh, a very interesting kart racing game, mm-hmm. uh, because you could build your own car out of virtual Lego. Cool idea, you know? Uh, and I also remember this one cave level had had just banging music. Yes, you, you you mentioned that on the very first episode. Did I seriously? Yes. Oh my, oh my. That's how good it is. That's how yeah. burned into my memory it is. I haven't even listened to it in so long. For all I know, it's terrible and I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> but, but The rose-tinted uh, glasses are strong. The rose-tinted glasses, yeah. Another, another one I remember, actually, uh, Lego Rock Raiders, which was a weird... It was a weird, like... Almost more of like a puzzle R- RTS kind of game. Puzzle RTS, okay. Or maybe it was more like it was kind of like an RTS, but it was just like interesting. It was a weird RTS, basically. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I can't think of any like. I guess the only other Lego games I can think of nowadays are just the ones that are all. Kind of like Lego Star Wars and stuff like yeah, that. That are, that are more just like a simple... Yeah, like from, from all accounts, those are like great kids games. Yeah. Seemed like they were doing more interesting things back in the day. Well, I mean, that just goes back to... I don't know. Back in the day, there wasn't exactly like this... There was less of a tier of kids game and adult game. It was just... Game. Here's a bunch of games... And if you hand this to a kid, then you're a bad person because a bunch of these games are hard as balls. <laughs> it's like, here, here, here you go for Christmas. Ghosts and goblins, have fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah, so I just realized the uh, number nine on my tier list. Actually, we already talked about it last episode. It was Command and Conquer Riddler 2. Um, so if you'd like to hear our uh, discussion about that game, go listen to last week's episode. Um, and I'm just going to pass it off to Sando to do his number nine. Yeah, we we, we didn't come up with a, a good way to handle duplicates before we, we started this process, no. so let's just wing it. No, we, we're winging it. <laughs> Yeah, I could go to eight, but it feels weird for me to go to eight and then you to do your nine. So we're doing yeah, it this way. Very, very, that's very gracious of you to pass off your turn. <laughs> okay, so my my number nine is uh, Final Fantasy VI. Ooh, nice. Now this is like I was saying earlier. This is a Ted Woolsey joint for the localization, and apparently he had a month to translate this gigantic RPG. Wow, seriously? Yeah. Square, Square was weird back then. Like, remember, like they Square they, was broke back then. <laughs> no, they were doing fine back then. Oh, were they? Okay, I think. Yeah, I guess six. Yeah, like the this was before they made Spirits Within, and that and that originally sunk them as a company. <laughs> but you like, know, okay, you know what? Honestly, Spirits Within was a perfectly fine movie. They just never should have branded it as Final Fantasy. A, you're right. They never should have branded as Final Fantasy. And B, it was, I don't know. It was fucking boring. 
But maybe I was expecting. I didn't I was, say, I, was, I was. I was expecting more from it. It wasn't like it looked amazing at the time, though. Yeah, they, they were doing some this, crazy shit. Yeah, some of the. See, I mean, although it was a bit uncanny valley-ish, um, it was. It was <laughs> I mean, at the time. <laughs> it was for the time cutting edge, uh, and it looked cool. Honestly, like yeah. Uh, that that said, yeah. The, the, that that said, it was the a pacing was, bomb. The pacing was bad. Um, but they, it got way more hate than it should have. Yeah, they they made their like main production studio in Hawaii. Wait, Be- what? Because it was halfway between the states and Japan. I so that makes sense, right? I like not really. <laughs> that's like when that's like when it, you know the, the compromise that suits satisfies nobody. <laughs> Yeah, that's when it, that, that's the that's the like cutting the baby in half kind of compromise from King, Sol- King Solomon style. I think it was King Solomon. Yeah. Oh um, boy. Yeah. No, it's like that's not a good compromise. Yeah. When you think about back then, Square didn't release Final Fantasy V or Final Fantasies two and three to the to the West, and apparently, like Ted Woolsey mostly finished a Final Fantasy V translation before it was, they just cancelled the plans to bring it to the West. It was very strange. But... Japanese business decisions, man. Yeah. That crazy Japanese business culture I mean, never makes any sense. They, they released a much easier version of Final Fantasy IV in the States because they thought we were babies. To be fair, Nintendo did that with Super Mario Bros. 2, which in Japan was a totally different game. I've heard conflicting stories about that one, to where some... Like, yes, that game is ridiculously hard compared to the original Super Mario Bros., but I've also heard the case that they just... They thought it was a bit too similar to the first one, because it's basically a level pack. That they it wanted, is, it, that they yeah. wanted to... It's totally They just pack. didn't think it was the right game to release in the States. So they brought over fucking Doki Doki Panic and reskinned it. <laughs> I mean, I do Which love... Was, I do love the reskin Doki Doki Panic. Yeah. Super Mario <laughs> USA, as it was eventually released in Japan. I mean, if we, you know, we think about this. We would never have gotten bob if it weren't for that game. Sniffets. Or Sniffets. Sniffets need to show up in more things. Yeah, uh, yeah actually. Like, Birdo. Birdo's in everything. Birdo's in every sports game. Why can't I have a Sniffet just holding the tennis racket with his goddamn mouth? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. You know, special power, immune to Wario's farts. <laughs> Love it. Or super affected by Wario's farts. I mean, it is a sniff it. It's Ah, yes, it sniffs. True. <laughs> Either way, there needs to be sniff it fart interaction. <laughs> There's still more characters in the Smash Fighter Pass. Oh, dear. Sniff it has joined the battle. They put up in a piranha plant. It wouldn't surprise me at this point. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. They did put in piranha plant. I love piranha plant. I hate piranha plant. <laughs> that's why I love it. Yeah. But, okay. Getting getting far... Let's reel in this tangent. Final Fantasy VI and why it's so amazing. So, this, this game, it has, it has, like, the equivalent of an ensemble cast for an RPG, is how I look at it. Because it's got so many different characters in it that each have their own backstory and stuff. Like, there's 14 playable characters in it, which, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're... I'm not 100% jacked in on the RPGs of the time, but that has to be something that was, like, unheard of at the time. 
It's like Final Fant like all the other Final Fantasies had, you know, your four character party or whatever, five character party. And like Final Fantasy IV, you had a five character party, but you didn't choose who was in your party. That was always determined by the story. In this game you could make a party of whoever the hell you wanted. Yeah, the, and then there was a bit of a reclassing system too with, with jobs, if I remember. No, that was that was five. Oh, that was five? So the the main character building mechanic in this one was the Espers. Uh where you gave each person an Esper and they got different stats when they leveled up and over time they learned spells. Okay. So, you know, you could focus on, like, your mage characters getting attack spells, maybe your more physical-based characters getting some more support spells I didn't really care about their magic stat. You could b- build your characters in every so which way. And... It's it's one of the first games that just had a story that I was super invested in. Where, you know, there's this... Magic is this, like, crazy thing in this world that magic comes from these espers that come from another, like... Like, another dimension, basically. And harnessing this magic causes gigantic war, and it's got this, like, weird steampunky vibe. Yeah, I love, I love the, like... Techno magic vibe, yeah, in the game. It's super cool. Yeah, because like I really uh, like the sprite art in. in uh, oh, it's in fantastic! Sense. Really, really, really good. And like they perfectly, they they did a good job capturing that sort of idea of, mm-hmm. of just like blending the sort of like magical elements and the technology elements, and like actually like really showing that yeah in the artwork. Because like over time, Final Fantasy has weirdly like progressed through technology. <laughs> And to where, like, you know, Seven has these, like, in big industrial cities with Mako energy and shit. Eight has spaceships and stuff. Like, thir- 13 is, like, comp- completely crazy technologically wise. And so, like, this game was really the, the first real transition from, like, a lot of just, like, high fantasy concepts into something new. That I fully like when I think about I, the Final Fantasy V, uh, the Final Fantasy world building that they do. Final Fantasy VI is the one that I think really uh, did the best job first, and it's an old enough game, so I'll go into a little bit of spoilery stuff. But it's got my favorite villain in any game, Kefka. Kefka's the fucking best because he shows up early on as this like lieutenant. Who's bouncing? Whose sprite is just bouncing around the screen? He's literally a clown, like a jester type. He he spouts off lines like "son of a submariner" and shit. And he's just like this kooky guy who you think is just like, oh, that's you know, this is you know, the recurring villain that you'll fight a few times before you get on to like the main shit. And then halfway through that game, he betrays the emperor takes all this, like, crazy magic power from these, like, three progenitor goddesses or whatever for himself and literally destroys the world. Like, this is one of the very few examples where the villain wins. The villain actually said the, accomplishes what they set out to do halfway through the game, where they completely destroy the world, pretty much. And, like, everybody's in these, like, derelict villages and shit. That some of some of them are completely destroyed. Some of them are just like don't know when they're going to be destroyed because this crazy clown jester who was experimented on as a 
as a kid is fucking batshit crazy and wants to blow everything up. And so the second half of the game is this really cool concept where you're going around the world just trying to recruit all the people that you that you like met up with in the first half of the game, the first world. And so it that that inc- that incredible shift in tone is also one of the things that I think makes this game just like inc- a masterpiece in storytelling. And the last thing I'll say about it is the fucking soundtrack. The soundtrack is so good. And it's is like inspired by opera. There's even an opera section in the game. <laughs> where they, and it's it's incredible. Like they tried so hard. They to make a SNES sound like an opera singer. <laughs> and I respect the hell out of them for doing that. And the the boss theme is like jam. Uh the fucking the the final boss theme, Dancing Mad, is just this like twelve minute long epic with multiple sections that builds up to the final like bit with Kefka and it's yeah. Absolutely incredible. Alright, coming in for our next S-tier game is uh, one with also an incredible soundtrack, um, Fez. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that game. <laughs> so, Fez is made by game maker, I believe it's, his name is F- uh, Phil Fish. Yes. And uh, who is actually an interesting and controversial figure on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the game that he created <laughs> is incredible. Fez is uh, similar to Mario, uh, the side-scrolling Mario games, um, but uh, the interesting thing is that it's mostly a platformer, and uh, the gimmick that they have there is that it's actually a 3D world, and you can, uh, with two buttons on your controller, you can actually change uh, or, or rotate the entire world 90 degrees in order to uh, continue moving in your 2D fashion uh, within this 3D world. And so uh, many levels have puzzles which require you to uh, conceptualize and navigate through this 3D-esque uh, space in 2D. Um, and one of the other amazing things about it is uh, that over time there's a lot of lore in this game uh, and a lot of secrets and you can actually find these secrets out on your own Um, when I was playing through it I kind of had a mini journal uh, to document the interesting and weird things that I found some of them were pretty hard to solve and me being the spoiler loving guy that I am I uh, went online to figure out more of it and just got to enjoy as well the community there of uh, Mm -hmm. people who figured it out and what really kind of blew me away also was just the atmosphere, which is uh, part partly from its graphics, um, very very simple graphics. But as you're moving from uh, level to level, there's a kind of cohesive theme to this world building that they do, where you uh, really get a sense of this world, even though you know you're pretty much navigating essentially alone um, to try and figure it out. And the music, my goodness, the music, I, I can't speak highly enough about it. Sometimes I'll, I'll listen to it uh, late at night when I'm uh, wanting to just relax and, and kind of get into uh, a zen state. And uh, it's, it's made by 
Ooh, I'm now trying to remember who makes the music for Fez. They're actually... Uh, it might be more than one person. It is... Disasterpiece. Oh, ah. yeah, Disasterpiece. And, uh, yeah, Disasterpiece uh, makes actually quite a, quite a bit of video game uh, music. A lot of chiptune style, uh, as I recall. Yeah. And uh, so their soundtrack, what's interesting is that um, if you listen to this soundtrack by itself, um, it really does make you feel like you're going on a journey from the beginning of the soundtrack to the end. And it, that theme actually carries you through the levels that you're going through. You really get a sense of place in the story arc of, of, of your journey uh, from the beginning to the end of the game. Or at least that's uh, the perception that I had. But yeah, definitely one of the top uh, games that, uh, that crossed my... Um, crossed my list here. Yeah, like, there's a lot of weird hidden depth to that game with the puzzles, and I remember I've heard some people talk about how that game, it's, it's like, weird to go back to now, because when it was first released, there was this, like, big community, it was kind of like a big community effort to try and figure out all the secrets in that game, because Mm -hmm. like, and so, like, I'm, I'm on a Discord where a bunch of people were like, hey, I haven't played Fez ever before. I kind of want to play it. Does anybody here else here not played Fez who wants to play it with me so that we can kind of, like, recreate the community aspect of it when it was first released? That it, sounds pretty cool. Yeah, so it's re- really interesting concepts in that game. Oh, yeah. Okay, Uh, so looking into uh, number eight on my list is uh, Advance Wars Days of Ruin. Nice. Now, I know that Santo's going to have some opinions here, Uh, (laughs) uh, but so I love the Advance Wars series. Uh, It's a very nice uh, turn-based strategy series, and... I, I chose Days of Ruin as my favorite, um, specifically because I think in terms of the gameplay, uh, th- this was the last, <laughs> most recent, but probably last, uh, yeah. Advance Wars game, and I feel like they really had kind of the mechanics down, and they kind of tuned it so that a lot of different strategies were viable. Because uh, it was a really fun game, and actually it could be quite uh, competitive. Uh, in fact, we used to frequent, I think all three of us, a Advanced Wars, Advanced by Wars yeah, Advanced Wars internet forums, and yeah. yeah, there was an Advanced Wars online okay. game of the uh, version of the game, which was terrible. Uh, it, it was, was so it was, slow. It was basically play by email. It, yeah, it was very very yeah. slow. But yeah, we all we all had accounts on Advanced Wars Net. And they had they had a rank ladder for Days of Ruin, yeah. which I I believe uh, it didn't go quite your way when we played. <sighs> Every single time me and Santa would play uh, against each other, if it was an unranked game, I would win every time. If it was a ranked game, Santa would win. <laughs> I don't get it. It was infuriating. 
Uh, it was even more infuriating because, like, you were actually, like, decently high on the ladder, too. <laughs> I, I think I was higher than you on the ladder. Yeah, you were. Like, I I didn't play that much on the ladder, but I just beat you twice, and then it was, like, in the top five. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, the algorithm for ranking was, like, ridiculous. It was Elo. Um, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, in terms of the actual gameplay, uh, some of the other ones were... Like some of the other Advance Wars games, uh, there were just some dominant strategies that were really frustrating. Like uh, a couple of them, like the mech, ru- the mechs were just like the like if you were trying to be competitive, like it was just like spam mechs um, because everything else was just not cost effective. Uh, mechs and artillery, uh, and so I, I felt like Days of Ruin uh, they rebalanced it a bit so that some of the higher level units uh, had better cost uh, ratios so that. A, a wider variety of methods were competitive in higher level play and that's why I chose it as my favorite entry in the series um, now that said it ha- they made some big design changes in Days of Ruin uh, they totally shifted the aesthetic into a uh, a gritty uh, a gritty and more realistic setting uh, as compared- more realistic post-apocalypse <laughs> yeah, post-apocalypse yeah I, I mean compared to Compared to like some of the other games, what's an airport? What? Yeah, Andy, what's an airport? <laughs> like, wait, and he—he's—I I don't know what his canonical age is, but he looks like a twelve-year-old kid in charge of an army, and it's like, does this really make sense? No, but that's the game's aesthetic. It's like a bunch of kids playing around. Oh, and and in the first game, it's just like we just beat the big bad Sturm. Hey, Eagle. We're rivals. Let's fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's send a bunch of quote unquote mechanized soldiers to their doom. <laughs> I remember that being being part being part of like a throwaway line in one of the games where these are these are just like mechanized units and there's not people in them despite all the sprites having people in them. Uh, yeah, yeah, they did they did say that uh, in a couple of them. Yeah. actually, <laughs> didn't really make sense, but. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, honestly, like, the, the the bright and happy cartoony aesthetic in, like, the first few games, I did like it. I thought it was, a, it, it worked. Um, and so the aesthetic change into, like, more gritty uh, look in uh, Days of Ruin was, it's just different. But I, I, I picked that as my favorite because I just liked the core gameplay and thought that it was uh, the best. Probably because they had had time to iterate through on what worked and what didn't. Oh, this is this is gonna get awkward. Some of the other games. <laughs> oh, oh, what? Well, see, my favorite's Advanced Force Dual Strike, Ooh. which is number four on my list. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not actually gonna be able to talk about it till next episode, but yeah, but, you know what? Well, let's just talk about it now, and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. figure it out. But like, I mean. Both the games are amazing. Like, I love both of them. And certainly have played our fair share of them. But uh, I prefer Days of Ruin because it was so broken. Oh, no. no, no. <laughs> or, sorry, yeah. I, I, I prefer Dual Strike just because it was so broken. It was very broken. Like, the tag powers were insanely broken. The skills that you could put on your oh. people to make, like, Canby have nigh indestructible units. That shit was hilarious. It was pretty funny. And, like, yeah, if you wanted to have, like, a more, like, fair fight between people, you could all, you could just turn all the, that shit off. No skills, one CO, and, ha- and still have a pretty good, a pretty good time. 
Hachi. Yeah, Sean, I remember when you picked yeah. Hachi and Colin. Yeah, Hachi on, Colin. On, yeah. On, no, no, no. I had a match against Sean where he picked Hachi Colin on the like really, really good start side of Span Island. Uh. Which, which which on that version had like an extra factory like on the front lines. And I still beat him. Because the turn after he decided to make like four Neo tanks, I was Rachel and just shot missiles at it with my super CO power and reduced them to one HP, which then spent all of his money repairing them. <laughs> I just I just like <laughs> ran over him. He was just like, Oh, you spent all of your money? I'm gonna delete all of your all of what you just spent. That's so funny. Yep, I remember that game. Yeah. yeah. And Dual Strike Dual Strike was what the the fun parts of Dual Strike were when you have a crazy uh, setup of multiple turns yeah. ready to go, and you just you just make bank and like roast everything. Mm-hmm. And I I also preferred the campaign in that game. Um, I thought there were a lot more like tricky, cool maps in, in Dual Strike, um, and. Yeah. Oh, there was also the combat mode, which was surprisingly fun. Yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, they had that other mode. Which was... It was weird. It was weird, cool. but I liked it. Because it was a real-time Yeah, it was mode. just like you're moving around your mech and your tank and just like <laughs> shooting at shit. It was very basic, but but a cool idea. Oh, and and I also think that the music in Dual Strike, I think... Far outpaces oh, Pace of Ruin. Yeah, like, gonna, the, the character themes in Dual Strike were so good. Yeah, I'll give you that. Dual Strike, Dual Strike had some some pretty good character themes. Also, I think Dual Strike, like the the strongest point about Dual Strike in my mind is just the sheer variety. It had so many COs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. so many sort of options for like how you um, combine them since you have two. Uh, that and you know lots of music you know lots of maps like it, it had a lot of content yeah and even um, like the different CEOs like some of them had different like affinities towards each other to where you know Eagle and Drake like if you put them together they get a bonus because you know they're part of the same same faction or whatever whereas if you put you know uh Olaf and Lash together. Lash bombed Olaf's hometown to smithereens, so they hate each other. Yeah. So, it, there was a lot of... Like, like stuff like that is the kind of stuff that I love to see in games where they're just, like, little... Small mechanics that don't have to be there, but are there and make sense. Yeah. yeah. And, like, to, to your point, like, there's no doubt in my mind that if they kept going with Advance Wars in the Days of Ruin style... That they could have made a game better than than Dual Strike, but but they just never did. Yeah, or like was... Days of Ruin, as, as in terms of rebooting their series, was as good of a first attempt as you could get. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, it was great. And one of the one of the downsides, of course, to the reboot is that, uh, like, especially in terms of say, like, the number of COs, like, they had a fewer number of COs, especially because in Days of Ruin. Um, they made a pretty major change in that the COs are on the battlefield. Yeah, they, they don't do anything on, on, until they're in their... You put them in a unit. Yeah, and which them up there. is... is I really liked it. Yeah, incredible concept. I thought it was really cool. Um, and uh, But because of that, like they had to throw away all of the old um, COs and sort of change the way that the whole thing worked. And so there was a lot less... A lot fewer COs. Yeah. 
and um, you're a bit more. Uh, they just had to rethink the way that the powers worked because it's like more integrated into the battlefield layout, which I thought was cool. But, but you're right. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, they had to. They they had to. Uh, yeah. They had less. It, it, they changed it from a macro strategy to a micro strategy, to where instead of you having your CO that affects everything you have all at once, you your CO only affects that one unit that you have and a certain area around it. So you have to plan more around that specific unit, and that you know that changes things from strategy to tactics. And some people prefer the different size of that coin. Yeah, yeah, for like sure. I, I, I see the upsides to both. Yeah, and it and it was it was it was cool. Both great games. Um, in in some ways, very different. Uh, although, ultimately, a lot of the core gameplay is is very similar. I wonder what conceits they'll do next. Advanced Wars Chess Grandmasters. Well, no. next they're going to do another Fire Emblem Gacha game. No, they don't need to do another Fire Emblem Gacha game. The one they're doing is one of the most. It might be the most profitable thing Nintendo's ever done. Are you serious? It's very profitable. <laughs> Anyways, um, the next Advanced Wars we're going to make is going to be anime as fuck, and I'm going to hate it. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> when I talk about Fire Emblem later. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. That, for those listeners who don't know, uh, the Fire Emblem series and Advanced Wars are both made by Intelligent Systems, which is a uh, company-owned subsidiary of Nintendo? So Second party? Like, I... I, I don't know if they're second party or first party at this point, but like Intelligent Systems, I believe, did some of like the hardware design for some of Nintendo's consoles. Like they were part of that, but then they also made games because why not? And yeah, yeah I, like I I, th- I think they're, they're they're like an independent company that only works with Nintendo, kind of. Yeah, so I guess second part. I don't know. It's it's a we don't know the. Specifics of that relationship. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Advance Wars is awesome. It's awesome, yeah. I'm very sad that Nintendo seems to have decided that the series is not worthy of further well, entries. There, there was an interview with one of the directors on one of the new Fire Emblem games where they were asked about Advance Wars, and they said that they didn't really want to bring it back without incorporating some of the things that they think has made the new Fire Emblem game so successful. Uh, and one, one of which is, like, having more, more like, character interaction on the battlefield. Which, like, between characters, which 100% isn't what Advance Wars is about. Com- Advance no. Wars is all about every single unit you make is disposable. Even in Days of Ruin, where you put your CO into a tank and it gets blown up, you can just put them in another tank the next turn. Yeah. So, whereas, like, Fire Blood Emblem, armor. in Fire Emblem, yeah, sure, you can have more character interaction between them because each thing that, each that you're controlling is a unique entity with a name and a personality. Yeah. It, well, it makes sense for Fire Emblem, Fire Emblem because it's a totally different game. Yeah, they're both turn-based strategies, but Fire Emblem is a... It's, a very... It's, it's like the pre-deployed maps in an Advanced Wars game. Like, it's a... Well, but also... Um, like it's the same characters. It's an RPG. It's an like it's yeah. a tactical RPG. Yeah. Whereas the right? other ones, whereas turn, Advanced Wars is based strategy. Yeah. It, Advanced Wars is not an RPG. It's a it's a turn based strategy where you build units like on on the field, and it's a bit more uh, of you know there's like resource considerations and stuff like that. It's a it's a very different concept. Yeah. So I don't know why they. 
think that their yeah, I, relationship I, relationship mechanics would be just a terrible addition. Love can't bloom out a battlefield. Everybody knows that. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I think we can move on from Advanced Wars, and I guess I'll be talking for a bit more as I bring you my number eight game. Now, something I don't think I've mentioned in these podcasts is that I, I originally wanted to make games. I want to be a game programmer. Uh, so I went to school. I got a game programming degree, and. Uh, my career path didn't necessarily turn out that way for making video games. I just do, I do structural engineering software now, but it forced going into that like line of thinking forced me to think about video games in a different way. Uh, it it forced me to think a lot a lot more critically about the games I'm making and try to think more on the designs, like how how they were designed, why their designs are good, and everything in between. So my number eight is The Witness, and I think anybody who cares one iota about game design needs to play this game, because it it's a puzzle game where all the all the puzzles are on these panels, and every single puzzle has the exact same mechan- quote unquote mechanics to it, where you draw a line, you just draw a line on this panel, and there's a bunch of different things on the panel that have different pieces of logic that you interact with to try and come up with the correct solution. Now, what makes this game so incredible is that there's no written text in it. None at all. To where you need to figure out as a player how the mechanics of all of these different puzzles work, and there's hundreds of puzzles with, you know, maybe like 20 unique mechanics or something crazy between them. So... Just how the puzzles are laid out for the user to discover, because it's a the game takes place on a big open island where you can go like almost anywhere on the island right from the get go. So to be able to be able to show the user all these different puzzle types and all these different mechanics in a way that makes sense to how the user you know, learns how to solve them is an incredible feat to where, like, just the placement of things where you go out of this gate and then you'll see some panels on the on the left that are a slight evolution of the mechanics you just learned. And they're completely optional. You don't have to do them to progress in the game. But naturally, the user is going to see those panels and go there and then solve them and learn a thing that they'll bring on to the next set of puzzles and the next set. And some of the mecha- some of the puzzle mechanics in this game I've also never seen in any other game. There's uh, a section uh, called the quarry, which has just like when I got there, my mind was blown. I ha- I put down the controller and took a walk because the mechanic they introduced to the puzzles was so revolutionary. I've never seen it before, and just it it literally pretty much as literally as you could get blew my mind. And there's a ton of, like, really interesting puzzles with color and perspective as well. Uh, I finished every single panel in that game that I know of, at least. Maybe there's some <laughs> hidden stuff, but I I did all the hidden stuff that you can get achievements for, so maybe there's new hidden things. And there's another, there's another part of the game that I'm not going to spoil. Everybody should go play The Witness. Um, 
that also completely blew my mind. And everybody who's played it, you'll know it when you see it. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, what I what I really loved about The Witness um, is just, like, the whole... It's really just the presentation. Yeah. And, and, like, it's... And it's how the presentation supports the learning of the player. And, like, just how... It's a calming game, you know? It's a game... Sometimes... This, this is a great decision, by the way, okay? Puzzle games can be very frustrating. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the Witness, in particular, has some very challenging puzzles. And so making the choice to have sort of this, like, calming aesthetic, I think, was very intentional on their part. Yes. Um, and and it looks great, and it it really helps the game kind of shine. I mean, you could just sequentially throw puzzles at the player and they could solve them and that's like a thing that other games do but that's not what the witness does yeah like this could this totally could just been a linear menu where you go from puzzle to puzzle to puzzle and the designers would have had total control over how the user interacts with the progression of puzzles but they decided to make it this open game where the user can walk around anywhere and so yeah, and then accomplishing that in a way that is fairly intuitive, without di- without textual direction to the player, it's just it, it's it's a real it's a real class in um, like visual communication. Yeah, because like so many games nowadays are over tutorialized to hell, to where like there need I think there needs to be an option in most games that just says like, okay, how many games do you play normally? It's just like, I play a ton of games. It's like, okay, don't put me through the fucking look up and down to choose inverted controls or whatever. They did in Halo. <laughs> and, and, and like, the Pokemon games. Like, I know how to play a Pokemon game. I don't need the tutorial on how to catch a Pokemon every goddamn time. Oh, yeah. And so, The Witness is a game with no tutorial. Well, no apparent tutorial, that is. Yeah, it's just seamlessly built into the puzzles themselves. Exactly. Yeah, it reminds me, in some ways, it reminds me very much of uh, some of the things they did with the Portal games, where, mm, yeah. and Valve, Valve is meticulous with this stuff. I, I love, uh, if, if you have played any Valve games, I highly recommend uh, doing the uh, audio walkthrough uh, narration. Like the commentary? Or commentary, yeah, yeah, yeah. The commentary. Um, because it really shines, especially if you're interested. If you're interested in this stuff, like game design stuff, because they they walk through the whole process and they their whole concept is like showing the player and giving little hints, and they do it so seamlessly. They guide the player so seamlessly that the players do not. I did not even know that I was being shown how to solve the puzzles, but I was uh, because. They, in their testing process, they they try to um, figure out where people are getting stuck, and then when people are getting when the testers are getting stuck in a place, they they put these little hints. I remember there was one puzzle in particular in I think Portal Two, where there's these boxes, and uh, what you have to do in the puzzle is you need to drop these boxes with the correct timing such that they collide in midair and then drop to the ground. And this was. And this was something that a lot of people were struggling with. And what they found was that uh, they put a section in just before this 
where they show boxes colliding in midair and dropping to the ground as part of the background. Mm-hmm. And by putting that interaction in the background, uh, players were like, oh, I guess the physics engine supports that. That's cool. Interesting background, right? <laughs> but then it turns out, no, it's actually to subtly cue people into realizing that that is... That's a solution. ...going to be a solution to a puzzle. Yeah. Like, yeah, that... that those those commentary tracks are very revealing for uh, what comes to game design and but yeah an, an excellent uh, an excellent listen uh, yeah so the witness uh, oh one other thing about the witness that's like kind of kind of cool I, I I heard a lot some some amount of people like kind of dismissing this stuff but th- there's a bit of philosophy in there. There, there. Let's just say there's some hidden stuff that you can find, um, and I don't know. I, th- I thought that stuff was interesting. I didn't necessarily think it was good, and it, I didn't even necessarily think it fit the game. But it was interesting stuff to think about. So if if you find that stuff, it's cool. All right. So next up on my tier list, uh, coming in at S tier is uh, crawl. Now, crawl. Crawl. What is crawl? You say crawl is a little bit similar to games like Diablo. It's a dungeon crawler. However, it's got a crazy twist on it. So it is a game meant to be played in multiplayer uh, with you and your friends sitting together, uh, one TV. There's no online multiplayer, unlike a lot of games these days. And the conceit is hilarious. Uh, You're all dumped into a dungeon, and uh, the first thing you do is engage in mortal combat with each other. And uh, only one person will swiftly remain, as uh, you all basically are one hit point away from death. Um, But no worries, because everyone who didn't make it is resuscitated as a ghost. And so uh, the rest of this game... Um, is basically a journey to uh, beat the final boss. Um, And uh, the player who is alive and well doing that has to battle monsters and uh, avoid traps and level up. But uh, the twist, the monsters and traps are the other players. (laughs) That's right. So the antagonists are controlled by your friends, who are trying to brutally murder you in every way that they can, uh, with everything that they have available to them. Um, and uh, as they're going along, it actually... So it's com- it's cooperative in a way, but then as you get close to death, it becomes com- competitive, because there's only one person who win- who lands the killing blow. A cooperative among the ghosts, that is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so cooperative among the ghosts um, and competitive to be the person landing the uh, the death blow on the player who's living uh, because then they take his body and use it to uh, continue their mission to level up their own uh, human player and uh, get him as prepared as possible to defeat the final boss. Now, the human player is not the only person leveling up because every time he descends a level... The uh, people controlling the ghosts get to upgrade their monsters. So at the beginning, you might be fighting a slug or a spider or a little ghost girl, and uh, you can take the damage that you've done to the player and invest that uh, as points into um, upgrading your monster along various different evolution paths. So 
even um, at the beginning of the game, before it all starts, you select the god that you're going to associate with, uh, um, who provides you the monsters that uh, you're going to be fighting with. Um, and even if you pick the same god from run to run, uh, you can select different monster evolution paths and actually unlock new ones. Um, and in fact, every time that you play, you unlock something new. Yeah, it's 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 got that like one more turn thing of Civ where it's just like, oh, I just unlocked this cool shit, let's play another round. <laughs> that can be very dangerous. It can. It can uh, be, yeah. The games can be relatively quick, um, or mm. they can take quite some time, yeah. usually is the case. I would say that the games can last up to an hour, between half an hour and an yeah, hour. It kind of depends. I mean, if you have one, if, if one player from the beginning become like in in principle uh the first player uh who wins the initial uh sort of bout and becomes human could go on to uh not die at all and then beat the final boss in which case it would be a quite a fast game i don't think that's ever happened uh, with us well you need to get to level 10 before you're even able to challenge the final boss so there is there is a there is a basically a minimum time that's that's implemented there now, the other interesting thing is that the final boss uh, has some interesting mechanics because mm-hmm. uh, the ghost players simultaneously inhabit various parts of the uh, boss's uh, body. And so sometimes it'll be a three-headed dragon, other times it'll be um, a monster rising out of a lake, other times it'll be this Aztec-style uh, um, idol whose limbs are popping up wildly out of the out of the ground and who can turn you into a chicken at a moment's notice. Uh, it's it's honestly it's it's very fun. Um, and it's also just the dynamic of the game where at times it's very uh, competitive or it's got the competitive streak all throughout it, but yet there's an element of cooperation um, and yet there's that feeling that, you know, at any moment, although you've been working together with your friends, that you're going to still need to be the one to land the killing blow in order to uh, uh, rise up. There's the um, character building, you know, you need to build a character that can beat the final boss and also repel these terrible attempts from your, from your friends to murder you. Um, it's great. It, uh, it's definitely one of the more unique games out there, and uh, if there was ever a mod that did something like that with Diablo, I would uh, no doubt slap the button and install that mod quicker than you can sling mud. Yeah, the thing I think about Crawl that really... It, it's just it's a successful experiment in a very interesting and dynamic asymmetric multiplayer concept. I love asymmetric multiplayer in general, uh, especially when it's fairly... Uh, when it's not one-sided. And I feel like Crawl does a pretty good job of, of uh, not being... Especially because it's dynamic, because you're switching you're switching out, essentially, yeah. the role. switching role. roles, yes. Yeah, because it's one versus three, basically. Mm-hmm. And, but the one player is always changing, depending on who kills the, the alive uh, adventurer. And what you end up with is just this, this, this really cool um, asymmetric multiplayer game that that actually goes for a while um, because a lot of asymmetric multiplayer uh, game concepts are I, I've, I'd say fairly limited in terms of their overall kind of uh, depth and like the sort of time yeah and like which, which can be fun especially as a party game I, um, another asymmetric multiplayer game 
or games, I should say, the Nintendo Land game for the Wii U had some really cool asymmetric multiplayer mm-hmm. concepts that uh, were basically, they were sort of like mini-games, really, uh, but they were really, really cool, and they used the separate screen that the one player could hide uh, as the way of uh, getting a real information asymmetry as well as gameplay asymmetry. Yeah. But then Crawl's interesting because it has the asymmetric aspect uh, without like hidden information, uh, and it... it it does it pretty well. So you, you don't need uh, separate screens to, to do asymmetric multiplayer, which is, I think, one of the things that most asymmetric multiplayer games are either online only or they require a separate device um, mm-hmm. because a lot of developers, I guess, aren't thinking of like these sort of other methods like what Crawl is using to sort of incorporate uh, a bit of an asymmetric multiplayer concept. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's an underexplored area and in particular, I I still am very upset that all of those really really uh, super fun party games in, in Nintendo Land uh, never really got expanded upon by anyone. <laughs> not Nintendo, not not other developers trying to copy Nintendo. Just like no one did anything. It was like oh oh you mean Nintendo put out some kind of hardware thing that nobody else did anything with, including them? Wow, mm. what, a, what an interesting concept that's never been done before. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, one, one other thing that I want to bring up about crawl and asymmetric gaming is that uh, there's definitely a trend with asymmetric multiplayer where each like role that there is like some people can prefer one role to another and that can like really mess up the dynamic of a group trying to play a game but how, the way crawl does it is that like when you're controlling the you know player, or you're controlling these monsters, you're kind of, the controls you have are largely the same. And also because you're switching so much, like it doesn't get into that trap that something like Evolve got into. Where Evolve was this like 4v1, like four humans versus one gigantic monster thing where some people only want to play the monster and some people only want to play the hunters and it just, it never really found a good multiplayer footing uh, and I think that was largely one of the problems with it. Yes, the the idea that you know you want some asymmetry because you want some difference, but you don't want it to be so different that it's dramatically different gameplay. Yeah, that's alienating that to certain players. Might, yeah. that, that people have preferences about. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, crawl does it all. <laughs> crawl does it all. It sounds like a slogan for something. Reach out to me, Indie Doves. I got a million of them. All right. Uh, so let's see. I am going up to my number seven pick. And so for my number seven uh, favorite game, uh, I'm going with The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. Oh, okay. All right. Seems yeah. Interesting. Get some, get some suspense up in here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so The Wind Waker is my favorite Zelda game. And I will say that... Uh, I, it's quite funny because I remember when it came out and people were so upset. Uh, people are idiots. Fans, were <laughs> fan, like longtime fans of the Zelda series were so upset at Wind Waker. Um, and a large part of that, uh, honestly, I think was this weird reaction that people were having to the art style. Because uh, it has a very, uh, it has a very, very, 
big shift in the art style from the previous games. Uh, but, I mean, I don't even think it's that crazy. I but think, like, that, well, I think that in, in terms of were, like, if okay, if they had released that immediately after the Super Nintendo stuff, nobody would have had a problem with it. No, I don't think so as much. Yeah. But I, I people think, wanted some kind of like super mature, gritty, grounded Zelda thing. And then for they got some reason. And then they got Twilight Princess, which and was that, was right, and everything was right in the world. Uh, yeah. Um, and then the funny thing is, when Twilight Princess came out, I remember people were complaining that Twilight they, about people were complaining about Twilight Princess, and then you know over uh, time, like people I mean, started to talk about Wind Waker as being good again, and it's like. The, the, the fickle the fickle whims of what people say about newly released games, especially in an iconic series like the Zelda series, is like it, it's yeah. almost not even worth paying attention to sometimes. Um, yeah, I'm sure everyone knows about the Zelda series and Zelda games, but uh, the reason the Wind Waker is my favorite uh, is a I, I actually I really like the art style. I think the art style has tons of character. Uh, it it lends itself to standing up well to the test of time, I would say. Like, the Wind Waker, as a GameCube game, uh, like, it is a bit older, but it still looks great. Yeah. And, like, I mean, they re-released it in HD. And they didn't really need to. They, yeah, they... Well, I'm pretty sure if you upscaled the game on an emulator, that's basically just what the HD re-release <laughs> is. Perhaps. Um, although they they made some subtle changes around uh, a couple of mechanics, I, I think they they made the boat go faster, uh, which was another complaint that people had about the game is that sailing took a long time because it's 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 ocean based. Ever been on a boat, people? Yeah, sailing no. takes a while. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, now your boat gets stuck in a canal, <laughs> disrupting international trade. Yeah, but, need to ship this lawn lawn milk. Yeah, but uh, now Wind Waker, Wind Waker was a great game, and I think it had a lot of it had it had a lot of good dungeons. Um, although some of the areas were like not really, I they weren't dungeons as such. Um, and a few a few of the complaints about the Wind Waker, I I've really like they're they're overblown. I mean, people didn't like the art style. Tough. Some people like it. Some people didn't. I love the art style. Uh, and they did a pretty good job of like making it expressive too, uh, with the sort of exaggerated cartoon uh, uh, facial expressions and, and stuff like that. But um, some people complain the game was short, and it is a bit shorter than some of the other Zelda games, especially Ocarina of Time, which was what a lot of people were comparing it to. Uh, it does have a fewer dungeon; it has a smaller dungeon count. But I, I, I don't think that that's actually as big of a deal as some people make it out to be. Uh, I would rather have a tightly focused game that uh, that's that's all good throughout, rather than a game where they try to pad the length. And, um, it's uh, yeah, a game that's shorter but well executed is that's not a downside in my mind, as long as the game remains good and the Wind Waker does. And then um, the, the one downside, uh, the Triforce quest is terrible. I, I will say that. That's that's the speaking of padding a game out. <laughs> yeah, they should have omitted it basically. Yeah, um, but, but they they and I think they they, they, they they did streamline that in the HD version. I think they changed it. They they streamlined. I haven't actually played the HD version, but I've I've heard that they, yeah. they streamlined it. 
uh, so that it's uh, much more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've got the HD... I haven't played Wind Waker. I've got the HD version, and it's the only reason why my Wii U is still on my desk. <laughs> um, one day I'll play it. <laughs> yeah, it is a great It is a great Zelda game. Um, I, th- I had to think about this, actually, because I'm like, well, I- I'm going to put a Zelda game on here on this list, but which one do I pick? And the funny thing yeah, is that I've been, I've been replaying Ocarina of Time, and honestly, the game does not hold up. I, like, it does, but it doesn't, okay? <laughs> like, it holds up, but there's some stupid-ass decisions that they made for that game. And it's just, like, weirdly obtuse. Uh, especially the overworld stuff. The dungeons in Ocarina of Time are amazing. Some of the stuff in the overworld has been really irking me upon playing it again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the Wind Waker, I just, I, I really liked it, actually, a lot. And uh, it it has this like pirate aesthetic, which seems ridiculous, and it seems like a dramatic tone and uh, shift. Uh, but you know, honestly, it works. Uh, it's a fun game. It's a bit silly. It's got this like high seas pirate vibe going on. Why not? I've actually that that's one of the only Zelda games that I've not played yet. And mm-hmm. so uh, yet another reason for me to play it <laughs> at some point. But, uh, yeah, from what I've seen with, with um, the evolution of Zelda games in general, one of the interesting things is the different genre and atmosphere that each of the games takes uh, from, from the beginning. Especially when you start getting into the 3D versions of the games. I find that um, each one of them, in its own way... This is going to sound kind of odd, but it, it almost felt like the same way that Zelda games contained several different temples that each have their own theme. And in that way, it felt like the Zelda franchise, you know, contains different uh, self-contained environments where it's retelling the classic Zelda story um, with these new bents. So, for example, you know, with uh, Twilight Princess and, and the Shadow Realm... You know, uh, versus the um, the dark and bleary future, versus you know the, the the innocent youth past in in Ocarina of Time. I felt like there was such depth to all of these um, the, these worlds that were built that have real themes behind them. Some themes which mm-hmm. back when I was playing those games, I was not yet mature enough to understand them. And so revisiting them, I can appreciate even more. You know, they're not just telling a story. There's there's so much design and um and purpose built into everything from the art style to the music to yeah um, like the the world tells the story in those games not the plot yeah very much so i don't know how much we i i have this pet theory that i want to get into but we might we might have to save it for another podcast we should yeah okay that that's Suspense. It's going to be got, too long. You got yeah. to keep listening to this podcast yeah. if you want. If you want. If I hear that. Yeah, I, I, Alex's I, Zelda theory. Yeah, I have an overarching theory of like what the Zelda series, what Nintendo is doing with the Zelda series, and like why the cultural context explains the differences in thematic content between the various games, and uh, I think that it's going to be long enough that it's going to need its own episode. All right. Look forward to that. <laughs> there we go. Okay. 
So, my number... What are we on? Seven now? Seven. Okay. So, one thing that... I guess we didn't say at the very beginning of this is the obvious disclaimer that these are our favorite games. These aren't the best games. You're, you're probably going to disagree with a lot of what we're saying. Um, you probably haven't even played or heard of my number two on my list, for example, uh, when we get there. But Also, uh, uh, <laughs> a couple of... Uh, I think we basically made the decision to... Uh, uh, basically, with franchises, kind of only pick one entry. That's no, no. <laughs> okay, well, I, I I was trying to do that to keep the list more interesting. Yeah, because it's like I could fill the list with a bunch of Zelda games, but then we're just talking about Zelda, <laughs> and we can make a Zelda episode for that. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but five Final Fantasy games later. Uh, eh, not that many. <laughs> Uh, anyways, the, the point I'm trying to get here is that there is a distinction between somebody's favorite game and a game that they might objectively think is, like, the best game or whatever. A lot of my favorite games have flaws. Except for this one. My number seven is Transistor, and I firmly believe that this is a perfect game. Every single piece of this game is absolutely masterclass. I... I have zero flaws with this game. I don't have a single nitpick that I can say about this game. Like, the number one game on my list, I could talk at length for maybe, like, 15 minutes, half an hour on everything that's wrong with it. I can't say a single thing that I think is wrong with Transistor. And this this is made by the absolute geniuses of Supergiant Games, who I think is one of the most impressive studios currently running. Every single piece of their game feels handcrafted and intentional in a way that other games sometimes feel like they were just designed by committee. Yeah, Supergiant, I, I feel like Supergiant is really bringing like the art and life into their games. Um, you can really tell that they care with every game they put out, and I swear their games just keep getting better. Uh, I haven't played Hades, but Transistor is a standout. Yeah, and they, they do so many interesting things with it. Now, one of the things that um, a lot of Supergiant games do is that they have such a breadth of customization on how you play the game. And this is one of the things that I love the most about games, is playing it in a way that feels unique to me. Even if it's not, even if a bunch of other people also play the exact same style as I do, I with Transistor, like I discovered the style that I want to play it, and I played it that way for a little bit, but because the game has so many options and so, so many different ways that you could approach combat encounters, and I actually ended up switching what abilities I was using constantly. And one of the reasons for that is the they're geniuses. They're, they're, they're so goddamn smart. To where... In Bastion as well this happened, where in Bastion, the first time you get you find a weapon, you pick up that weapon, and you only hold two weapons, so you give up one of the weapons that you have. So you're forced to use this new weapon. Now, a lot of games, um, like, people can get locked into one certain style of playing and not experiment with the breadth of options that are in the game. And if, av if as a designer, you don't incentivize people to try out new things, 
they might just not do that and they might not like your game because the one style of play that they have chosen to do isn't doesn't quite work for a section of your game, for example, and they just get bored or it's too hard or something like that. In Transistor, they lock um, a lot of the world-building lore behind these different like text log entries that you get for using these different abilities in your different slots. Like you have your weapon slot, then you have like a modifier s- slot and a secondary modifier slot on your like you have a modifier slot on your weapons, and then you have just a general modifier slot that might change like your HP or global, how, bon- how f- global bonuses. Yeah, global bonuses. And so it's it's such a brilliant system that made me want to experiment with everything. I yeah, especially because the world building in Transistor is so beautifully done. As, yeah. Anyway, um, it's got a very. Um, it's got a very interesting setting uh, that, when you're thrust into it, honestly, is very confusing. Yeah, they, yeah. It's a, they cold open yeah, it's the a, game, yeah. where, where your sword is talking to you, talking about how you, you lost your voice. And you're like, why is this sword talking? Why, does, why is losing your voice such an important thing for your character? And it's what, hard to say. How? Shut up. <laughs> uh, how? How did this happen? What are the consequences? What's going on in this world? And so, it's they dole out that world building so deliberately because there's different checkpoints and you you unlock the lore entries by using a certain ability in a certain slot between a checkpoint. So once you get to a new checkpoint, you have new lore entries. You can find out a little bit more about all these different, like, personalities that are in this world, and, and like, this whole Illuminati shit that's going on. Oh. Yeah, it's got, it's got yeah. a very, it's got a, yeah, and the plot is very much, like, the plot is revealed in uh, sort of cutscenes, but then it's also a, a lot of the background to the plot to actually understand what the characters are saying to each other is found in the lore. And so most people who play the game are are going to want to understand what the characters are saying and read the lore to do so. But to do that, they need to experiment with the actual game mechanics. And that's just such a brilliant design. That's such a brilliant design decision. Yeah. I, I can't... I, I literally cannot think of another game that does that. No, not a one. Um... <laughs> I, I can think of one other game that does that. Hades. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You get more lore for you, for game. using certain certain things. Well, yeah, another next game. Next, or, game, was oh, next yeah. game was Pyre, but we'll get to that eventually. Um, so yeah, and there's also like this beyond just the you know linear progression of the story. There's also this like little area with combat puzzles and challenges and stuff and all of those are also expertly designed and super fun to do and the music in the game as with many of the games on our list is absolutely incredible it's I think the best example of atmosphere and music in a game soundtrack that I've ever heard it, it, it yeah. is it is absolutely gorgeous it is a gorgeous soundtrack yeah and like there's a bunch of just like I think it's the the thing that stands out to me the most about Transistor actually and its music is 
it, it stands out to me for being an incredible game soundtrack where there are lyrics in some of the songs and yes. and it's not out of place. Yes. Exactly. It's not out of place at all. Fucking and when it, you're walking up to that the that one boss fight and the spine starts playing, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Holy spine crap. Yeah. That's that, one of the best sequences in games. It, it is. It is. I I am a hundred percent with Santa that this is Top tier. This is so sometime we were just talking about how this is a list of our favorite games, but but this is legitimately one of the best experiences I would say in game in gaming um, that I have ever played. It's so good. Everyone needs to play Transistor. I I didn't play it for a while after it came out because I wanted to play Bastion first, even though it, it's totally un, unrelated. Uh, and I I can't believe I waited so long to play Transistor. It, it's so good. Yeah. What. Yeah, but it initially hooked me on playing Transistor. Like, I I'd heard so many great things about about Bastion, but I bought it, but just never played it. I played Transistor like at release date just because of the. As soon as I saw the combat, I was hooked. I was like, I need to play this game because it's this weird mix of real time and and like you can pause the action to plan out your moves. To where like a couple of your abilities you can use in real time, but mainly you. You're going into this tactical view and setting, and you have action points, and you set up all these different moves that you want to do to like to take out your enemies with again all of your different abilities that you have. So you can like smash an enemy to give, make it so that they take extra damage from subsequent attacks, dash behind them, and then use an attack that has a backstab bonus, and then you have a modifier on your dash that shoots out bombs when you dash. So. Dash the stuff, away. That, <laughs> the stuff that you dashed across gets hurt too, and then you can charm enemies and shit. It's, yeah, ugh. it's got this, it, and it, yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting mix of um, like it's it's sort of like an action, it's sort of like an action game. It's sort of like a it's almost like a hybrid turn based strategy action game that's just kind of in its it's it, it's kind of in its own like the combat system's really in its own category. Yeah, hundred percent. It, it, it's it's not it's unlike any other combat system, and it's almost like it. Even calling it a combat system is almost like makes it sound. It's almost reductive in it, a way. Yeah, and it's 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 very fluid. Mm-hmm. It's 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 fluidly tactical in a way that neither a real time nor a turn based game can actually really feel like. It's so it's the it's one it, the game has some of the smoothest combat. That I I I've ever uh, I've ever experienced. Yeah. The only reason it's not higher on my list is that nostalgia's a bitch, <laughs> <laughs> and games that I played when I was twelve have an inherent advantage. Truth. I thought about trying to fit Transistor into my top fifteen, and I was like, ah, it'll be on Santa. <laughs> I love the meta game. The meta game is very the important. The list meta game. All right. List meta game. Yeah. Sean, what's up? All right, so coming in at S tier is uh, Dead Space. Oh, all right. Oh, okay, yeah. So this game is a horror game. Uh, is it set though? In... Yeah, totally. <laughs> the first one? 100%. Okay, the, okay, the first one was, yeah. 100%. Dead yeah. Space 2 was not. 
So Dead Space 3 was 100% not. <laughs> Dead Space is this amazing game that uh, takes place with a essentially silent protagonist. Um, you play not a superhero, not a super soldier. You play a space engineer. Your job is to fix shit. Uh, you are given space engineer tools, mining tools, those are your weapons, um, converted mining tools of varying kinds, everything from a, uh, a pile driver to a uh, saw blade to a plasma cutter, and uh, as you swiftly find the ship that you are approaching, uh, where, your, uh, where your wife supposedly is... Um, is in fact overrun with some sort of very strange and very lethal undead creatures. Um, and they all seem to be... Uh, that's not the only creepy thing on this ship either. There's also a cult that has uh, made its presence aware on this ship. And uh, anyone who wasn't driven batshit insane by the uh, device that is responsible for the creation of these zombies is probably already batshit insane for other reasons. Uh, the Church of Unitology. Yeah, that's not a jab at any particular real-life organization, is it? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so basically, uh, throughout this game, what really ratchets up the tension is not just the fact that these zombies are coming out of the war- walls, the floors, and the ceilings to uh, come uh, dismember you. And by the way, dismemberment is one of the main primary features of this game. You'll quickly find that shooting these zombies in the head has no effect, uh, but... You can actually rend them limb from limb until they're flopping like a like a fish towards you uh, before you stomp their faces in, um, and that's often what you have to do. And these zombies uh, have the conceit of they are taking the uh, uh, the tissue of, of dead people and reanimating them very quickly and in unusual ways. So you'll find that uh, the enemies always have some sort of very creepy slant towards um, something you know that was recently digested. And it's now coming back at you at alarming rates. Like when the zombies end up in the nursery and you've got zombie babies uh, flying at you. Quite alarming. Um, but in any case, uh, I would say that it's the uh, the atmosphere as well plays really heavily into this in the sense that when you go into outer space, you actually don't hear anything. Uh, no external sounds except for okay, the yeah. terrified breathing in your yeah. suit. Dude, the, the low gravity like spacewalk sections of dead space were the strongest i think part of the game oh yeah oh yeah um they they, they were very cool and then uh all throughout the way uh being the engineer that you are you're good at upgrading things and so you have the ability over time to uh gather resources which are your in-game currency to be able to modify your weapons and so as you find out which weapons you prefer using you can actually uh, basically go down the technology tree uh, on those weapons and enhance them uh, so that they go from, for example, the lowly plasma cutter uh, weapon at the beginning of the game. If you fully upgrade that in your tech tree, you have an amazing weapon uh, for the end of the game that uh, feels like a very competent sidearm. Um, interestingly, there actually is a, uh, a plasma rifle um, which is a little bit strange. It has a mode where you essentially get down on one knee, Iron Man style, hold this weapon above your head, and it sprays fire in all directions. <laughs> uh, what you find, though, quickly, is that this weapon, um, and all other weapons, which have very limited ammo, 
Um, but that particular weapon is horrifying, not because it's good at killing enemies, but because you're just going to run out of ammo real fast and then be scrambling for some other solution to take down the swarms of enemies coming at you. Yeah, speaking of weapons in Dead Space, um, one of the sort of cool touches to Dead Space uh, was that the game has no uh, uh, heads-up display. It has no informational overlay whatsoever. Um, and I, I think I think part of the reason that they, they tried to do this uh, was for greater immersion. All of the relevant things like ammo count or... Even health. Or, Your health yeah, is... Yeah, health. Uh, uh, and all, all, these, all these various things are either on the weapon model built into the design of the weapon or built into your character's model on like he has a backpack i think that displays his health it's actually yeah his entire spine has leds uh, yeah and it's uh it's it's a subtle thing but i think that that's a really cool uh detail and it's one of the things that dead space uh actually uh was uh i'm not sure if it was the first game to ever do that but it definitely it felt like people were talking about that being a big deal at the time. Though other games, I yes. think, other games have since done that as well. Uh, but I think Dead Space was kind of the first AAA game to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Per- so, personally, I found that Dead Space didn't have a very scary. It, it, to me, it was not a scary game. Some people say that they found it to be scary, um, but I, I, I thought it was just uh, gory. There's a couple jump scares, but. They, they're fairly telegraphed. This is fair enough. Santo, did you ever play the game? No, because it's... You know, I don't like scary games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like any kind of horror stuff in general. I don't... Have you played Resident Evil? No. None of them? Oh, okay. I'd say it's on the level of like some of the Resident Evil games. Well, some of the Resident Evil games are just camp. <laughs> so <that's, laughs> you need to be more specific. I feel like Dead Space is like... Dead Space is trying really hard to be scary, but often ends up campy more than scary. Perhaps. I don't know. I, 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 haven't, the, I haven't seen enough of the games the to try first and refute, one, the, refute the all. Okay, the first Dead Space game is the most scary, uh, and they really leaned away from actual horror into more camp horror in the second and especially later. I, I didn't play the third. It looked ridiculous. Um <laughs> I've heard some things about the plot in the third game. Yeah, hilarious. Uh, but the second, the, the Dead Space Two already was like I was losing interest, and uh, I think that the entire Dead Space series as a whole is just an allegory for uh, uh, the slow and eventual decline of our species, um, <laughs> through which technology is the means for our madness. <laughs> so, some Prussian allegory there. Oh yeah. Uh, what what's interesting about um, this game is that uh, it pulls a lot from the tropes that we see um, in other in a lot of different movies. For example, Event Horizon. Uh, there's uh, definitely heavy themes from Event Horizon, which is a classic '90s uh, film starring Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, and is about a ship that goes uh, on a trip in space. Uh, it arrives in hell and uh, comes back a sentient evil creature uh, which, like a flytrap, um, lures hapless people to it I mean, in order to murder them in terribly gothic ways. Techno space madness is definitely a vibe. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then there was Pandorum, this movie with Ben Foster. Oh, Pandorum was great. Pandorum was fantastic. Uh, the concept of a uh, people awakening on a colony ship and they're terribly confused. Um, it is well past their due date to arrive at their colony. Uh, they open up the front windows and there's nothing. They have no idea where they are. Um, and uh, the true horror, of course, in many of these is our, our humanity, yeah. which has evolved into some sort of terrible race of people who only know how to feed off of each other because that's the only food source available on this ship, which is uh, should have left... Uh, off-boarded them onto the colony, and uh, spoiler alert: as it turns out, they were on the. If why would you? Pandemic. Why would you spoil that? It's such a good movie. They were on the planet the whole time, and just it was Earth happened. all along. <laughs> <laughs> the Planet of the Apes, that shit. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and then yeah, the reason that so when they open initially, when they opened the windows to the ship, there's no. It's no black. stars, and they and they think there's no stars. All the stars are gone. It's basically we're at heat death of the universe. That's a leap. <laughs> well, because that's what ha- that's that's what would happen eventually. All the stars, like the current understanding of, of physics, is that eventually all the stars will burn up, and then well, yeah, there won't be anything. Eventually, <laughs> yeah. But there's the thing: this colony ship was designed to basically last indefinitely, and so the 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 that. For most of the movie, you think that's what's happening. Is that this is just not not hey? There just might not be any visible light where we are. <laughs> uh, in space, anyway. The um, yeah, the eventual reveal is that no, it's just at the bottom of the ocean of the colony that uh, plant colony or, or the planet they were supposed to colonize, yeah. and they just I mean, I guess crashed. They, I guess they were space mad. They weren't thinking straight, so yeah. <laughs> Now, the one scene that definitely uh, I found quite amusing and, and also... This is, this um, is just a movie podcast now, Very tense in, uh, in Dead Space was the scene where a giant uh, tentacle comes and grabs you and starts dragging you down the hallway. And uh, clearly it's not inviting you to dinner. Uh, it is inviting you because you are dinner uh, towards some sort of terrible hellhole. Um, and uh, it's quite the frenetic action sequence, and I was actually watching a YouTube video about how that scene essentially was the make-or-break point for the developers, where um, a whole bunch of work, effort, and uh, blood, sweat, and tears went into the game, and that was the lynch point where they were actually finally able to, quote-unquote, uh, sell the game to the uh, uh, to, to their... Uh, intended stakeholders and, and be able to go, yeah, we, we got this one in the bag uh, from from their overall reaction to it. Yeah, we, we need the Angry Film Zone. Angry Film Zone! For, for, first order of business, 12 Angry Men. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Alright. So, number six. Right, the yeah, last num- one of the number episode. Number six. Um, so, my number six, actually, we also did last episode. It was Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Yeah, and so I don't think I should go up to number five yet because I, then we're gonna have a we gotta have uh, all top five well, next well, episode. Something, some of that I, I think we did miss out a little bit is that we didn't really talk about what makes Smash Bros so special to us. Besides the nostalgia of it being an old game, yeah, and like, well, also I mean, there's they're, they're not all old. There's one that's pretty recent. We started with the original Smash Bros. Yes, the fir- uh, I remember like in grade seven. I came over to your house and we played some fucking Smash. 
Yeah, and I think part of what made that game so great was actually just bringing together all the characters from the different Nintendo franchises and yeah. being able to beat the shit out of your friends with them. I mean, that's the gimmick, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the whole thing. Well, what initially drew me to the Smash Bros. games was the fucking the sheer chaos of them. Yeah. With all these stages, with all this crap going on, and all these items, and all these special effects, it's just... Some people don't like that chaotic aspect of it and take the game super fucking seriously. But for me, the chaos is what initially brought me into the game so hard. And, like, even now, we've been playing this game for so long, and even now we're, we're having games with interactions that, like, are crazy and we've never seen before. Even now. Yeah, there's a lot of dynamic uh, sort of things that can happen. Uh, just from all, especially now with so many characters. Uh, but there's so many there's so many things that can happen, yeah, like you said. And it's also not a very combo-based game. Like, if you're, if you're going to be, the... but... It, it, I, I, would, I would disagree. It is combo-based. It's just that it's not... Like, the, the combos are not like a fighting game where the combo is built in by the developers. But there are a lot of things that are effectively combos that are required to be good at the game. To be, like, this super competitive. But, that, but that's the thing, is that one of the biggest problems with any fighting game is trying to play with other people is it's so intensely based on the personal skill of each individual playing. Like, I... I like fighting games. I'm not particularly good at them, but even then, like, when, you know, multiple of us owned Marvel vs. Capcom 3, and, like, if I picked the characters that I mained as, it, like, it wasn't even a contest playing against friends, because those were the characters I made, those were the characters I knew shit with. Like, it was so completely imbalanced that it wasn't fun anymore. To where, instead of just playing ra- random characters against people, like, yeah, that, that ended up being still pretty fun. And Smash is, at least for us, it's a game where we're all on the same skill level, pretty much. Yeah. And, like, we can have we can have complete fun with it because we're, like, it's not every game is going to be one of us completely dunking on the rest. Mm-hmm. Even when we're playing our mains. Yeah. I and mean, as long as everyone's playing their mains. No, even then, like, or, or, there, there, yeah. are, there are games where, like, me, Shaw will play Sephiroth, I'll play Byleth, and then you'll just, like, wreck us with Yoshi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who you don't even play Who that I often. rarely play. Or sometimes sometimes I'll pick Olimar on a laugh and get seven KOs. Yeah, that was ridiculous. I'll every, I'll every KO in the match except for one. I don't understand. <laughs> and that's the other thing about Smash, is that there's so many moments, and thank goodness they actually have a recorder. Uh, there's caveats to using that recorder, oh, yeah. uh, but um, there are some legendary moments that have been captured on uh, on, on film in that game. Um, and the caveat there is that you have to convert it from the format that it's in into a format that uh, endures the updates. Yeah, because they're, they're initially saved as just a sequence of actions, pretty much, and then to feed into the game engine, which recreates everything. And so you actually have to convert to video so that they will survive the great patch, the great patch armor. Yeah, I think we've lost. I think we've lost most of our recordings because of the patch changes. Yeah, yep. which is a shame. It's very sh- yeah. It's 
but oh well. They should really have given you a warning to like export the vi- export the replays. They should have given you an option to export the replays before the update. That's fully what they just said. In. Yeah, but the problem with that is, well, the game automatically patches itself, right? Yeah. In like in rest mode or whatever, I don't know. Yeah, yeah something it's like that. Modern co- modern console like. Modern problems require modern solutions. Modern console quality of life features are killing the business, man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but Smash is always a great game. Um, And it's... It's it's definitely the fighting game for us. uh, Because, Mm -hmm. like Sato says, it's the... It's it's got the right skill level for for all of us to actually be uh, competitive with each other and not be, like, completely just dominating and that's yeah. very it's very that's the it's very it's important because that's the biggest thing with a fighting game is, is really like who you're playing it with and and also smash is interesting because i think it supports a bit of a wider community than a lot of other fighting games to the point where you know you might be able to like meet someone at the party and like play smash and actually have a chance at not losing <laughs> uh whereas like if you meet someone who plays Marvel versus, Marvel versus Capcom at a party. You're going to be in the air for three minutes, and then you're, the game's going to be over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even even and even with uh, and with Smash, like yeah, a lot of people can play more casually, even if they are quite good, just by you know not playing their mains. And that's a lot more common, I find. Yeah, like, with Smash players, you can not pick a main, play with items on, play on a crazy stage, and you can still have a blast. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's nice that it's able to accommodate such a wide range or, of interest. Yeah. And or, most fight most fighting games just don't seem able to. Yeah. Whereas, like, I would love to bring Persona Four Arena Ultimax and just have a good time, but I know I can't do that because you know if if the people I'm playing with don't know the game much other than it's a two D fighting game, like it's just not going to be fun. But Smash Smash is for everybody. Smash for the children. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, all right. What's next? Uh, what's next? Okay. Number six. Number six is uh, Final Fantasy XII. Yep. I'm sorry. I'm, this, I, Final Fantasy is one of my favorite franchises. Like, I'm not going to not put stuff on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different, different strokes, different strokes. But Final Fantasy XII is a game that I didn't even know was released when I bought it. I want. I want also. Also, I mean, <laughs> I'll note. I, I do have, I do have some stuff coming up that's in the same quote unquote series. Uh, but there is a difference between two D and three D that I consider very important. I, that, <laughs> see, I disagree with you about that, but whatever. <laughs> we'll get there when we get there. But yeah, so Final Fantasy twelve. I remember very specifically when I went to go get that game. Me and Sean went to Guildford for some reason. I don't know why. And I stopped in at EB Games, and I was just browsing, and I had, like, 30 bucks to spend or whatever, and this was a fair amount of time after the game had come out. And I just saw Final Fantasy XII sitting there, I'm like, what? And by this point, I was already gigantic Final Fantasy fan, so I'm just like, grab that, slam it on the counter, let's fucking go. And it's, it's weird because, like, that's so weird to me because it feels like pretty much every other Final Fantasy game has had... Like, people talking about a ton. Except for 12. Like, the hype around Final Fantasy 7. And 8. And, 
lesser extent nine, but the hype around ten, and even like thirteen and fifteen, like there was a lot of coverage of those games, and people, it was in like the cultural milieu, so to speak. But twelve is like almost forgotten about, I think, which is a shame because it of the mainline games is my favorite. It's. And I think a lot of the reason why it's forgotten is because the fact that it came right after Final Fantasy XI, and XI was the MMO, and twelve, the structure of it is essentially a single-player MMO. And, yeah, it's... And also the plot is basically Star Wars. And, I mean, Star Wars is just a hero's journey plot, so it's a pretty solid plot to rip off. It's the OG. Let me put it this way. A young, a young child in the desert dreams of something more, and is visited by a smooth, a smooth-talking space piratey kind of guy, and their non-human companion, and then they meet a princess of a lost kingdom, and then go to fight the M- Imperial Empire. Okay, yeah. that's exact. That's Star Wars, but it's also the plot of Final Fantasy XII. Yeah. So. And you know what? It's also a techno magic setting. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, Star Wars is techno magic. <laughs> the Force. Yeah. It's at, you know what? At the time, yes, the original trilogy was techno magic, and then it just became techno, and nobody <laughs> likes techno. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think one of the things that pulled me towards Final Fantasy XII the most, and this, you know. I think this might have preempted things a bit because I didn't get into programming until later, but I really loved Final Fantasy XII because of the Gambit system. Where you you only had you had direct control over your party if you wanted to pause and give them commands. But normally your party would just act based on this system of basically if then statements where it was like, okay, if a party member is below 30% HP, cast Cure. Then, oh, if not, then... Oh, and if you find a flying enemy, then... And you're a ranged character, you know, you want to use your ranged attack on them and focus them instead of focusing a ground enemy. And if a creature is weak to fire, use a fire spell. It was just a cool setup for your party members in a way that most... Most of the Final Fantasy games that I think are the best are the ones where you have direct customization of what your party does and what rules they play. And this system, combined with the license system, where you have this gigantic board where you go around and pick what your characters are able to do, like you're, you can have you can get this you know gigantic thing of chainmail, but unless your character has a license to wear chainmail, they can't wear chainmail. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Sounds like Britain. Yeah, it's just like, you don't, hmm, leather hat? You won't have a license for that. You can't wear it. <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but there was also techniques and spells and stat ups and, like, abilities to use shields and stuff. So you had this intense amount of customization on what your party could do and how, and not only what they could do, how they did it. And... Well, the cool things was, as you progressed through the game and got later on, eventually, like, you could specialize early on to, you know, make a white mage equivalent and a black mage equivalent and, you know, a tanky character. By the end, you were able to expand through these license 
this license board to basically have all of your characters be like overpowered badasses that could do everything. And that's one of the most important things I, I think in any kind of RPG is that if you have this super in-depth progression system, you need to make it so that by the end by the end you feel powerful. And a lot of games have trouble with this where either the game becomes way too easy at the end or the game becomes hard in a way that you need to play the game their way, kind of, to get past it. And Final, Final Fantasy XII doesn't really ha have this problem. The game is has a re really good pacing and progression throughout. And because it's, it's kind of a single-player MMO thing, you're going through all these like large zones, monsters are just on the field, and you don't get into you don't necessarily get into random encounters. If you see an enemy, you can fight it right there. You don't have to like load in the battle scene and completely change the pace of the game. You can just like run around, fight enemies that you want to, run away from the ones you don't, and so it makes um, traversing the world a lot less less of a pain in the ass, a lot less tedious, and the story as well, like. I, I say it's a Star Wars ripoff, but there's a little bit more to it than that. It's still pr it's it's pretty damn good, and the world that they build is absolutely incredible. Uh, and this is it's a PS2 game, but it's still perhaps it's got one of the best examples of scale that I've ever seen in a video game. Like the initial city of Rabinaster is this pretty big city with all these different parts to it. And in most RPGs, a quote-unquote big city is going to be like, you know, your armor shop, your magic shop, your inn, a couple neutral buildings and, like, one plot-relevant building, and a few NPCs walking around. Like, it doesn't actually feel like a city or a town. But in this game... There's a ton of NPCs that you can't even talk to. They're just there in the background as, like, set dressing. There's a ton of buildings and stuff that you can't necessarily go into because they don't really matter to you. And it feels like a gigantic living city in the way that something like GTA might. And, yeah, so incredible scale, incredible mechanics. Just an absolute blast to play through. And there's a lot of optional bosses and hunts and stuff in the game that are also really, really fun and are gigantic spectacle fights. Yeah, can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I just remind me this game you had to like in an actual MMO though you you had to like grind levels a lot in it, didn't you? So it had. A... I just I remember one of the Final Fantasy games. Maybe it wasn't twelve. Maybe it was thirteen. Uh, that you were complaining a lot about the excessive grinding, but... Uh, hmm. It was either 11, 12, 13, or 14. Well, 11 and 14 <laughs> are the MOs, and I haven't really played them that, that much. Or it was 15, I don't know. i bad with Final Fantasy. <laughs> um, yeah, the, so 12 could get kind of grindy, uh, in a sense. Um... Because monsters didn't drop gold, they dropped loot, and then you would sell that loot. And this this made it so that if you if you wanted everything, yes, you had to grind. I just remember I have this like hilariously specific memory of you like grinding rats in a sewer. 
in one of the 3D Final Fantasy games. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay, right. So yes, so like I was saying, like I think if you want to play the game just like not like an OCD person, I don't think it's that grindy. <laughs> to where like because of the limited amount of money you get, you do have to pick and choose what you you know, buy in terms of gear and magic and stuff, which, again, fits into the license system in that you can only use certain things. So you can't necessarily get all the most powerful stuff at any one given time, because even if you did, you might not be able to use it all anyways. So it means that you had to pick and choose what you got. The problem with it is that the drop rates for certain high-end shit was such that you did sometimes have to grind rats in a sewer for a while it had this weird chain system where you had to grind specific enemies over and over and over again without killing anything else to get their most rare shit so yeah like if you wanted and the game also was notoriously uh, slammed for basically being a prima strategy guide seller where there was enough obscure shit in the game where it's just like you basically had to buy the strategy guide if you wanted any chance of getting the like best shit in the game because it was so obtuse and hard to acquire otherwise. So yeah, again, like I said, all the games on my list have problems, except Transistor. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so that's that's all I have to say about Final Fantasy the 12th. Right on, nice. right on. Okay, so coming in at uh, number six is a... Wait, wait, wait. What happened to S-tier? <laughs> well, it is the uh, it's the sixth in of the 15 S-tier games that we're talking about here, so... No, it's the tenth. <laughs> <laughs> it is the tenth S-tier game. All right, we'll go with that. So coming in at S-tier over here is... Uh, Apex Legends. Mm, okay. Sean out here busting busting with the, the nostalgia vibes for a game that's actually somewhat recent. Yes. So to divert a little bit from the nostalgia, Apex Legends has uh, been out lot for enough seasons that it feels like I, I feel a little bit nostalgic when I play it, when I talk about it actually. <laughs> so uh, Apex Legends is a uh, battle royale game. Uh, that takes place in the Titanfall universe. And so, essentially, the formula is you're dropping in from a giant ship in the sky uh, to a map. Uh, you arrive with pretty much nothing uh, besides the abilities that your character has, and you need to run around the map like a chipmunk gathering nuts, uh, the nuts being uh, the nuts and bolts being the weapons, the ammunition, uh, the armor, and... Uh, um, other special equipment like grenades or whatnot, uh, so that you can uh, form an effective team of three, or in some cases two, and uh, basically try and be the last team standing. Now, in your way is a ring that of uh, of pain and death that is uh, constantly shrinking, um, and uh, it shrinks the borders of the map until. Uh, well, until there's no room left. And so uh, the longer that the game grinds out, the less space that you have to fight. And so the games get quite intense. Now, what is interesting is is that when you first play this game, you're likely to just get brutally destroyed by other players in this game who have a lot more experience. 
Um, and over time, you start to get a, a deeper knowledge in ways you don't expect. For example, as you uh, start to familiarize yourself with the weapons uh, and the sounds that they make, you can actually tell uh, a fight going on in the distance. Now, a big feature of this game is the high, um, is the high fidelity sound that's going on. So you can hear footprints, uh, or uh, footsteps, rather, of uh, enemy players that are nearby. Uh, if they're being perfectly still and trying to sneak up on you, and they unholster their weapon, you can actually hear it being unholstered, which uh, has foibled me in many a stealth attempt. And uh, there's... Uh, so basically, uh, by understanding the sound design of the game, you can actually gain quite a bit of an advantage in the sense that you understand what other players are fighting with, uh, if they've got a short-range weapon and uh, and you realize that you've got a big uh, gap for them to close, you can fire at them with long-range weapons to increase your advantage. And so uh, all throughout this game, you start basically, you know, not just with no equipment, but, you know, with base skills. And the skills that you level up over playing this game will make you quite the deadly fighter. And... Um, the other thing is that uh, the developers of Apex Legends are constantly developing new content. They're developing new heroes, they're developing new game modes, they're developing new weapons. Uh, they're constantly rebalancing the game uh, in order to um, make sure that uh, characters can all be evenly used. And uh, it is definitely... it. Uh, has been around since 2019, and it still has a very strong player base, a still very strong uh, um, following on YouTube, and I hope that it will definitely continue. Uh, even the music's great. When uh, you're playing the game, it's also a free-to-play game. Uh, there's no fees for actually playing the game, um, and you... All the things that you buy uh, with the in-game currency do not actually affect the gameplay directly. They're just uh, skins, music, um, packs to unlock content faster. Um, in some cases, there are ultra-rare cosmetics. And that's actually one of the controversial points, is that uh, you, you're only guaranteed... You have a very small percentage chance of winning the uh, heirloom lottery and, and gaining um, uh, heirloom tickets to spend on your favorite uh, legend of choice and uh, unlock their heirloom. And they have a 1 in 500 uh, guaranteed win rate of these heirlooms. So if you bought 500 of these packs, then you're guaranteed on the 500th pack that you open that it's going to contain an heirloom. Uh, or if you're really unlucky... How much is one of those? Uh, so the cost of a single Apex pack... Hold on. Uh, I think it's like a buck. A yeah, bit, it's roughly oh, a buck. $500. You definitely can tell uh, either A, if yeah. someone's being sponsored, or B, if uh, they have uh, limited financial self-control if, if they have all the heirlooms. Yeah, like, <laughs> see, that's the great thing about Apex is that there's multiple different activities you can do. For example, like Sean was saying, whale watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, what's interesting is that they're actually slowly break... Um, so they've gone multi-platform. Uh, now they have... Uh, they started on just uh, the consoles and then and PC, and it didn't used to be cross-platform, and then they've made it now cross-platform. And they've also introduced uh, the Switch as a new platform. And they're also slowly bending away from just the... Uh, 
um, battle royale mode, and they have an arena mode now where it's uh, a team versus team instead of a whole bunch of players. And the other interesting thing that I'll say that they do really well is they actually take the time to develop the lore of each character. For example, some characters are in there because another character killed their parents, uh, and if you put the, the two of them on the team... Um, there's a lot of quick actions that can be done uh, through a radial menu to communicate with each other. Uh, for example, spotting targets, indicating that you have a need, um, expressing that you're going to help your teammate. And uh, if you're playing the two characters who hate each other's guts, which is Loba and Revenant, they just spit verbal fire at each other, <laughs> uh, even though they're trying to express you know, that they're going to come help you. They're usually taunting each other, giving each other smack talk. It's pretty funny. Um, and then from season to season, there will be various events that happen, and the voice actors uh, will update new lines to indicate the uh, current status of people's uh, relationship dynamics or various events that are happening uh, around the map. And uh, that's the other thing, is there's map updates. Uh, for example, in one of the latest maps, um, there's mysterious ships that have appeared, and there's strange growths coming off of them. Uh, the ships are dead. Uh, um, no crew uh, and you can go ahead and, and loot through there it's kind of interesting yeah what do you think um, uh, draws you into Apex so much uh, over other Battle Royale games I would say that um, one is that the it doesn't feel like a complete waste of your time and the process of moving from game to game is, 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 uh, is very efficient so if you happen to lose a game, you can boot into another game within a few, like within a minute or so. Uh, if if the servers are full, um, you know, re- relatively big, there's a queue and whatnot. Um, and so contrast that to say uh, um, Call of Duty, and uh, the, there's the loading screen, and then you have to make it through the uh, uh, through the opening uh, mini game that they have, which is all just. I presume, disguising uh, more loading screens and loading screens on loading screens. Um, The other thing that I would say is that uh, it's... There's also a notable lack of people who um, are outright... So so there's skilled players, um, and those are generally uh, segregated with other skilled players. There's kind of a skill tree tree that you work your way up. Um, But what you don't generally find is... Uh, players swooping in to basically just ruin your game with hacks, bullshit, and uh, and and other things. You may find those from time to time, um, but uh, generally, if you're being rolled over, uh, it's like that because you've come across players who are of a distinctive skill level above you. But that being said, you can still turn around a situation and uh, and reverse it on them um, given the right time. And the other thing is because of all the abilities, the abilities themselves aren't the central point around the characters. Totally. Um, they each have uh, you know the same run speed in general, the same um, and and are and are generally equal. But those abilities feel like extra flavors on top of that that enhance the combat rather than dominating it. I totally agree with that. That's a great point. Yeah. So that's uh, all the factors that uh, put it in as my top battle royale, and uh, the number uh, six on my S tier list. Cool. All right. Uh, well, I think that I think that wraps up this episode. Yeah. Again, 
Feel free to reach out to us at uh, angrysunzone at outlook.com. Yeah. Make sure to uh, subscribe to our feed, podcast feed. I don't <laughs> we're, know. It, wherever good podcasts are found. Yeah, right. we're on several We're on several platforms. So. Though, if you're listening to this, you probably already knew that. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, this is Angry yeah. Sun Zone signing yeah. off. Yeah. We out. look forward to the next episode where we talk about number five to, in some cases, our number one favorite games. And in other cases, our S tier game. <laughs> Later, everybody. Later.